Right. Good morning again. My name is Ralph Howe. If uh, any of you, if this is your first time here, just want to again extend a welcome to you. Uh, many times we have people coming in for uh, the summer for a few weeks, and some, some people are starting to move here at this time. So whatever your story is, we're glad you're here and uh, be happy and hope to connect with you after the service, uh, if that's possible. I was looking at my notes yesterday afternoon, um, getting a chance to share this message, and I realized something that I guess I knew, but it just hit me really clear uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, I have something very, very important to say today. Um, And I mean that, not not because I've come up with something clever, but it just hit me really clear how important the message is today. Um, I like to come up and start lighthearted and and joke a little bit, but um, I actually considered just coming up here and saying one sentence and just letting that be the message for the day, but... Um, Robin wouldn't let me do that. Um, Robin actually pays me. <laughs> he told me he would do that if I said his name today. I was going to kid around and say, Robin actually pays me by the word up here. So I need to stay up here for a while. Uh, don't actually get paid. But uh, here's the message today. We need a bigger picture of who God is. We need a bigger picture of who God is. And I'm really worried now that I'm really going to, in a very inadequate way, try to kind of illuminate that truth. But I'm going to be up here for about 15 minutes. I'm going to show us uh, about 12 to 15 minutes of a message from another preacher that's going to help me to make that point. And I think we're going to enjoy that as well. We need a bigger picture of who God is. No, God is not a man that he sleeps, but... If God, if we put this in human terms, do you realize that God has never gone to sleep one night with a worry on his mind? There's never been one night that he's fallen asleep worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. There's never been a day if he were a man that he would have woken up with a problem that he couldn't figure out how to solve. We need a big picture of who he is. Um, We, uh, my wife and I have four children between ages of six and nine. And uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks, we have four more children in our home. We have uh, some teenagers, a niece and nephew, and some good friends visiting. Uh, Three of them just flew in a couple days ago. And uh, I want to embarrass them and have them stand up real quick. They strategically stuck themselves in the back corners so that you guys wouldn't be able to see them. Thank you. Yep. I'm feeding you guys for the next two weeks. The least you can do is stand up. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, we're going to be running around. We're so excited. We love Beijing. We think it's a great tourist town, all the attractions that you go see. They're going to head off to go see the Great Wall uh, tomorrow. And, you know, it just hit me. The first time uh, my wife and I with our four children, the first time we went to see the Great Wall, we were driving along. And I did something that my dad always did uh, when I was a little kid, me and my sister in the car, if we were going somewhere. He would always say, hey, you know, whoever sees the bridge, you know, maybe we're going to go over a big bridge. Whoever sees the bridge first gets $5, you know, and me and my sister would fight and cover each other's eyes and be looking, you know. So I do that in my family all the time. It kind of drives my wife crazy. And, uh, but so I did that. I said, Hey, we're getting pretty close to where the wall is. If you've been there before, you start to see the mountains and stuff. So I throw out to my four kids, Hey, the first one to see the wall gets five R and B, right? They don't know that's a lot less than $5. So it works out good for me. Right? So what do they start doing right away? I mean, as soon as the sentence comes out, what do they all start doing? I see it. I see it. I see it. You know, of course we're not there yet, you know? And I'm like, okay, Jonah, where is it? He says, no, it was just right there. It, it disappeared, but it was just right there. You know? So I'm like, okay, so we have a rule where I have to validate it. 
You know, if they see it, I have to validate it. And then, okay, now you win the five R&B. So we're driving along another minute or so. And Abby, who's my youngest at this time, you know, about five years old, she sees a little, small little wall on the side of the road. Like it's a sidewalk and a little, maybe this big. And she gets so excited and she goes, the wall, the wall, I see the great wall. You know, and it's one of these little sidewalks in a little, you know, area. But she thought she was looking at the Great Wall of China. And I laughed, but then I realized, you know, she has no concept. She has no picture in her mind of how big and how grand the Great Wall is. Abby needed a bigger picture of what the Great Wall really was. And we need a bigger, more accurate picture of who God is. The Bible tells two stories primarily, one way to look at it. It tells the story of man, and it tells the story of God. And it is so important as a church, as people who are understanding who Jesus Christ is, it is so important to understand who we are. The Bible says we are deeply, deeply loved, that we were created for relationship with God. But it also says that we are deeply flawed, every one of us. We have sinned. It is so important to acknowledge that message To let that message humble us and bring us to God and ask for forgiveness. Never can lose sight of that part of the story. But listen, we can't not focus on the other part of the story. The other part of the story is the story of God. A God who never tires, who loves deeply, who creates for relationship, who willingly and joyfully forgives. And so I want to see my frailty and my inabilities less And I want to see God's bigness and his power and his grace more in my life. And so that's the message uh, that we're going to talk about. The Bible writers in the New Testament constantly bring up this theme. Uh, In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, I'll read this verse for you. John says this. He's near the end of his life. He says, yes, dear friends, we're all already God's children. And we can't even imagine what we, will be, what we will be like when Christ returns. But we do know that when he comes, we will be like him. For we will see him as he really is. Now, I spend a lot of my Christian experience trying to look more like I think God wants me to look like. And I look at myself. But what John is saying, listen, if you want to walk the life of Christ, see God clearly. John says, one look at who God really is will transform us. So, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, he kind of lays this out. I'm going to read those verses, I'll say a few more things, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this uh, other teacher here. Um, let me read this to you. We'll put it up on the screen. A beautiful, beautiful passage of scripture. Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus. It's a city. Uh, Ephesus was the major city in the region. So we know this letter as Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus. But no doubt this letter was passed around to other cities as well. It was read by many, many of the Christians in that time. Paul had been in that region and planted churches many years earlier. Many of the people that were reading this letter would have personally come to faith because of Paul's ministry. But then because the ministry had grown, many people would not have known him because other people led them to Christ. But he was thinking about his relationship with them. And he wrote and he said this. That ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for Christians everywhere, I have never stopped thanking God for you. 
I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. He says three things. Number one, to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will grow in the knowledge of God. Number two, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the wonderful future he has promised to those he called. I want you to realize what a rich and glorious inheritance he has given to his people. And then number three, I pray that you will begin to understand the incredible greatness of his power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realm. So Paul says three things that I'm praying for you. You know, I'm, I'm in small groups. My wife and I have been in small groups pretty much every year since we've been married. It's a great idea. And at the end of most of our small group meetings, we'll kind of go around and do prayer requests. Hey, how can we be praying for you? It's a great thing to do. And I'm sure many of us do it and we should do it. Uh, but I like this. Paul didn't even ask, what do you need? Because Paul had been walking with God for a long time. And Paul's like, here's what I'm praying for you because I know this is what you need. You know, so maybe you've got someone in your life and you don't know what to pray for. You can just pray for this list. It's a great list. So verse 17, he says, I'm asking God, the glorious father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. Paul's saying one of the primary um, parts of your life that I'm praying about is your mind and that as you spend energy learning and understanding about life, that it will be focused on spiritual wisdom. We all by necessity have to learn and gain knowledge through the course of our lives to pass tests in school, to move into college, to do uh, job applications and interviews, and then to be successful in our job. Uh, we have to learn about parenting. You know, if we have children, we have to learn about finances. And a lot of those topics are covered in the Bible as well. And Paul is not saying that to learn and gather knowledge to function in this world. He's not saying it's wrong, but he's saying primarily when you wake up each day, what are you doing to pursue a deeper knowledge of who God is and spiritual wisdom? Um, I grew up in a home with one sister. My sister's two years older than me, and my sister is brilliant, truly, very, very brilliant. I grew up in a town with a big uh, class, like 450 students graduated each year in our high school. My sister was the valedictorian. And uh, my sister truly uh, was, was so amazing that one of her teachers, her science teacher, at the end of the year, he took her notebook and he asked if he could keep it. And he used her notebook to teach the class for the rest of the years that he taught at the school because her notes were so clear and so good that it was better than his own notes. My sister never got below 100 on a test from, from elementary school to her senior year in high school. She never got below an A+, plus, but, you know, if it was a letter rating, it's as high as you can get. And then, of course, I came along two years later, and I would have the same teachers, you know, and I'd get an 87 or a B. You know, one, my English teacher called me in after class one time, and she said, Ralph, is, is everything okay at home? You know, and I was like, I think so. Why? She's like, well, you know, you got an 83 on this test. Is something wrong? I was like... I thought 83 was pretty good. You know, I, you know, I was like the little brother that, you know, just couldn't get. And I was, and my sister's wonderful. We have a great relationship, but I was always so intimidated by my sister. My sister went to Dartmouth, which is an Ivy League school. She graduated with a master's in engineering. Uh, she married a, a brilliant, you know, sometimes in America, we talk about someone, if they're really smart, we say they're a rocket scientist. Well, my brother-in-law is a rocket scientist. Like he really is. He builds engines for things that go up in space and all that kind of stuff. And he's from Sweden. They spent several years where he got his doctorate at Cambridge University. And so one year I flew to England 
and I stayed with them. And then we took a train ride from London to Wales, maybe six or seven hour train ride. And along the way, we're sitting chit-chatting and we would make stops at different stations, you know, reach speed, slow down, stop for five, 10 minutes, speed up. And we stopped three or four times. So my sister and brother-in-law, true story for fun, they would, they were calculating how long it was going to take to get to where we were going. But by using formulas based on here's our maximum speed, but now we're slowing down at this rate, we're stopping. Then it's going to take this much rate to speed back up to reach full speed. And they were like having a fun little game. Who was going to get closer to figuring it out, you know? And I'm sitting there like looking out the window going, look at that tree. Look, look at that tree. I was always so intimidated by my sister um, because she's so, so intelligent. And I get intimidated in a lot of situations. You know, I'm around all of us. You get around successful people. It's easy to get intimidated. But... Um, in, in a humble way, but in, in, a, in a right way, I've lost a lot of that intimidation. Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in understanding. And so, like with my situation with my sister, I love my sister. A wonderful sister, close to her. She's not yet a follower of Christ. She doesn't have a relationship with Jesus yet. She does not believe the message of the Bible And you know what the Bible says? It says that the beginning, the starting point of wisdom in a person's life is a knowledge of the Lord, is a knowledge of Jesus. So if you sit here this morning and you know Christ and you're pursuing that relationship, God says you have wisdom stronger and higher and farther apart than any worldly knowledge anybody can attain. So never be intimidated by any circumstance you come into you have a relationship with Christ. And Paul, who'd been following Christ, I don't know how long, maybe 25 years at this point, he was saying, any knowledge, any information you can gain is of very little or no value. But the knowledge and the wisdom that comes from pursuing Christ is eternal value. That's where it needs to be. So um, hope you guys get to meet my sister someday. She was here last year. Maybe she'll come back. Um, so the second point Paul makes in this letter, the first one is to pursue spiritual wisdom. Second point is in verse 18. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the wonderful future. He has promised to those he called. I want you to realize what a rich and glorious, glorious inheritance he has given you. When you hear the word inheritance, what does that pull up in your mind? Like didn't inheritance kind of get you excited. You know, we see movies about people whose uncle died and they give them like a whole bunch of money or something. Um, inheritance, uh, is a positive image, I think in our minds. And the Bible says that those who are following Christ, uh, we have an incredible inheritance an eternity with him and a quality of life now, as we learn to walk in it, um, that should have us waking up excited every single day. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In another place, Paul says, Think often about this reality in your life. Do you get overwhelmed by the challenges and the struggles and the troubles you're having physically, relationally, financially, socially? All of us, all of us walk through difficult stretches and times. And God is saying, you know, we'll walk through that. We'll work through it. 
But put your mind in the right place. Focus your mind on the reality of the inheritance that God has promised to you. And that will enable you to walk with the light inside of you. That's special. In, in Philippians 4, 8, one of my favorite verses, he says this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, let me say one more thing as I close this letter. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. One of the biggest challenges that you and I face every day of our life, and I'm going to put this on the screen, one of the biggest decisions you will ever face is in deciding what to focus on. The Bible tells us that our mind is a tool, and the way that we use it and the what we focus on matters and makes a difference. And followers of Christ should be the most positive people on the face of the earth. Not because we don't have challenges, but because we have confidence in God. And the bigger our picture is of who he is, the more joyfully we can walk. Um, I'm a golfer. Um, I teach golf here in Beijing. I love golf. One of my favorite golfers is Gary Player. Um, Gary Player is one of the most successful golfers in history. came from a poor background. And Gary Player... In the prime of his career, every week he would go to a golf tournament in different cities all over the world. And newspaper reporters would always come and interview him before the golf tournament because he was one of the best players. They would always ask him a question, what do you think of this golf course? So Gary Player is playing somewhere in Florida in America, and they say, hey, what do you think of this golf course? And Gary Player says, oh, I love this golf course. This is my favorite golf course. All year long, I couldn't wait to get here. I love this golf course, and I love it because in Florida, the ground is very flat. And you have Bermuda grass. He said, I grew up in South Africa, and they had Bermuda grass, and everything was flat. So when I get on this golf course, I don't feel like anybody can beat me. Wow, and the other players would read the article the next day, and they think, oh, boy, Gary's going to win. He's, he really loves this course, you know. And then like two, three weeks later, he'd be in a different part of the country, maybe up north. Reporter would come, Gary, what do you think about your chances? How do you like this course? Gary, your player would say, I love this course. I couldn't wait to get to this course. I love how hilly this golf course is. I love all the hills and, you know, and the bent grass. You know, bent grass is really flat. The ball rolls fast. He said, when I get on bent grass, I don't think anybody can putt as good as I can. He said, all year long, I couldn't wait to get to this golf course. Right? So the other players next day, they read the article. They go, what's Gary smoking? You know, I mean, what's, what's he doing? Is it flat? Which one does he like? But you know what? Gary Player, who's the follower of Christ who believes in him, he made a decision early in his life that he would put his mind where God said was true. He would see every circumstance as an opportunity. He would see every circumstance as, a, as an opportunity to glorify God in the way that he responded and lived his life. And Paul says, I pray that your heart... He didn't just say, I pray that you'll be happy. Paul says, I pray that your heart would be flooded with light. God wants to flood your heart with light in the midst of the reality of our circumstances. Because the more we see that, the more we focus on the inheritance he's given, the bigger he gets in our life. Um, maybe I'm telling too many stories. I'm going to tell one more and then we're going to, uh, we're going to put on this uh, other message for a few minutes. But uh, um, I'm going to be uh, seeing some friends of mine who are, live in Scotland. And years ago, they came and visited my wife and I in Florida. And I had the chance to take them to Walt Disney World for the day. Um, 
many of you probably at least know what Walt Disney World is. It's an amusement park. It's a lot of fun. I'd been there about a hundred times. I love the place. The rides are great. Every, the beauty in the park, everything's wonderful. So I was pretty excited to take my friends David and Francis to the Magic Kingdom. So we got there and we went through the ticket booth. And right through the ticket booth, they have bushes that they kind of cut out in figures of animals like alligators and giraffes and stuff. You know, once you've seen it once, it's not that big a deal. But David and Francis were all excited and they wanted their picture with the bush that looked like the alligator, you know. And so they're, you know, doing this and I'm taking the picture. And, you know, so we do that. So then we walk through and we get to this main street that you walk down. And right at the end of the main street, the whole park opens up. And, and as we're walking, they, you smell the smell. If you've been there, some of you know what it is. It's a buttered popcorn, right? And, and they make you buy this popcorn for like $9 a box, you know. And, but it smells so good, you have to get some. So David and Francis want to buy the popcorn. I'm like, I'm anxious. I know what's in front of us, and I want to get us out into the park, you know. And they sit down on the bench, and they're eating the popcorn. And I'm like, you know, I'm doing this, and they're eating the popcorn. And finally they finish, and up we go. And I've got plans for all the big rides. And so we get in, and we go to the left. In Florida, you go to the left. The first attraction you come to is called the Swiss Family Treehouse. And the Swiss Family Treehouse is not interactive at all. It's not really that fun. You walk up a set of stairs through a fake tree, and you look at fake little rooms, and you walk down, and you leave. And they see it, and they're like, hey, can we do this? And I'm like, okay. So we go up, and, you know, they're reading every little sign, and, you know, they're so interested. And I'm like, got to be kidding me. At one point, David calls his wife. This is true. Francis, come here. Francis, here's the kitchen. Here's the kitchen. Here's where they did the kitchen. And they're looking, and I'm like, guys. It's fake fruit. It's not a real banana. Why are you so excited? You know, but we get off the thing and truly we get done. And David looks at me and he says, can we do that again? And I was like, ah, I was so frustrated because I had been there before and I knew everything that was out in front of us that I wanted them to experience. And they were staying focused on all these things that really were unimportant in my mind. I wanted to be their tour guide. You know what Paul says in his walk with God? Paul reached a place where he said, I want to be your tour guide. I know what's in store for you. I know what the inheritance is. I know how rich your life can be fully devoted and yielded to God. And he's like, I want you to come with me and I want to show you. And I think sometimes I'm a little bit like David and Francis and I'm just, I think the popcorn's good and I'm just sitting there. You know, and God's encouraging all of us to go on. We need a bigger picture of who God is. And the third point that Paul makes in this letter, he says, I pray that you will just begin to understand. And I love that he says that if if we could just begin to understand how big and how great our God is, it would transform our lives. Forget about, um, in a sense, forget about discipleship programs and all that. A right view of the bigness and the greatness of God will transform us. And there is no way that I can do that point justice. I found a pastor who did a great message on it. We're going to watch him do this, and then I'll come back up to close us. But he's going to talk about the greatness of God, and you'll, you'll catch on as he starts talking. The bigness of God, the, the grand 
danger of God all over again. We're going to do it by looking at four stars. Can, can you handle four stars tonight? The first one's easy because there's just one star in our solar system, and that star is called the... Sun, thank you very much. Yes, it's our own star. It's uh, There's an image of it for you, by the way. It's a little more fierce than we often think. It's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface, but what I want you to see about it is how big it is. It's 93 million miles away, so when you're looking up in the sky, it's pretty good pace out there. By the way, light traveling 186,000 miles a second, it's only taken eight minutes to cover that 93 million mile journey to touch your skin here in Atlanta, Georgia. But what I want you to see is the size of it. It's like a million times the size of the earth, and that matters to us tonight when you hear what the psalmist said. Listen to his words. By the word of the Lord, this is Psalm 33, the heavens were made. In other words, God God didn't lift a finger when he made the universe. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. But he goes on to say, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. So we're looking at something so intense that we don't want to get any closer than 93 million miles away, which is what we are right now. And then we read that God just breathes out stars. It's crazy to think about it. A million times the size of the earth. So here's a little perspective that sort of changed my life. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, okay, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. Okay, that didn't seem to move anybody either. So let me try it a different way. Let me just try it just a different way. I thought I might need this, so I brought a golf ball, okay? So all through the evening, this is going to represent Earth, all right? So this is where we are. I need everybody in the building to look as closely as you can and find yourself, okay? And when you've found yourself, I want you to nod your head so that I know you've located you on the Earth, okay? You nodding your head? Okay, you found yourself. If the Earth were a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. That's not 15 feet in diameter. Can we blow that up just a hair and maybe give them 15 feet in diameter? So here's a little perspective for you, okay? Is this working for anybody? Here we are on the Earth, and that's the sun. It's so big, it's so big, you could put 960,000 Earths inside the sun. So if the Earth were a golf ball and the, and the sun were 15 feet in diameter, you could put 960,000 golf balls inside that 15-foot diameter sun. That's enough golf balls, by the way, because I know that seems like a big number, to fill a school bus with golf balls could fit inside the 15-foot diameter sun. It's a massive star, and it's one of hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, our cul-de-sac in the neighborhood called the cosmos that God has made. It's huge, and we're worshiping a star-breathing God tonight. But I want to tell you about the second star, okay? Because the second star absolutely wrecked my life. I heard about it when I was a high school student here in Atlanta. One of our youth leaders did a talk, and he mentioned this star. I didn't know how to talk to God for about two months after I heard about this star. It's called Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. You can pick your pronunciation. I'm obviously going with Betelgeuse and Betelgeuse is incredible. Here it is in the night sky. I know it doesn't look incredibly ferocious, but it's 427 light years away. So that's 427 times 5.88 trillion miles away from us right now. Draw it in a little closer with the Hubble Space Telescope, and you can start to get a little bit of the feeling of its intensity. But this is the crazy thing about Betelgeuse. Are you ready for this? Betelgeuse is twice the size. Are you ready? You think I'm going to say twice the size of the sun? Oh, no. It's twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun, Betelgeuse is. It's crazy. If the Earth were a golf ball, 
Beetlejuice would be the height of six Empire State Buildings on top of each other. No, come on. Have you seen the Empire State Building? I mean, maybe what you're going to need to do is gather the family, get a golf ball, get some plane tickets, and fly up to New York. And you're going to go into Midtown, you're going to take your golf ball and put it on the sidewalk outside the Empire State Building. Don't worry about people thinking you're crazy. They're not even going to notice you in New York. You're going to go across the street, you're going to look up at the Empire State Building and imagine five more Empire State Buildings on top of the Empire State Building. That's Beetlejuice, and that's the earth, and somewhere you're on it. You could fit 262 trillion Earths inside Beetlejuice. So if the Earth were a golf ball, that would be enough golf balls to fill up the Superdome with golf balls. 3,000 times. When I heard that as a teenager, that stumped me right there. Because most of my praying had been advising God, correcting God, suggesting things to God, drawing diagrams for God, reviewing things with God, counseling God. The third star, let's just, can you go a little bit bigger with me? The third star is called Musifi. Here it is in the night sky. It's that gold star to the top left. We, we have the big image of it. It's 3,000 light years away, but I just want you to see it in the, in the span of all these little glittering stars so that you know that at times when you look up at night, it is not just twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. I'm telling you what you are. What you are is intense and huge and massive and ferocious is what you are. And, and this one used to be called Herschel's Garnet Star. Check it out. If the earth were a golf ball, Musifi would be the width of two Golden Gate bridges end to end. Apparently, you're going to need to go from New York to the West Coast. Go to San Francisco with your family and your golf ball. Place your golf ball at the beginning of the Golden Gate Bridge. Go across the bay into Oakland to a high place where you can see the entire Golden Gate Bridge. Another second Golden Golden Gate Bridge will be in your imagination. Span all the way back the two Golden Gate Bridges to the very beginning and find your golf ball over there. That's the earth and somewhere you're on it. One of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It's so big you could fit 2.7 quadrillion earths inside this one star. Thank you so much. Where have you been all night? Now, quadrillion we have not talked about, and I need to explain this just briefly because I don't know about you, but I do not understand the national debt or any numbers bigger than about $875.28. I get that number. Go bigger than that, I don't know. But you need to understand a quadrillion, okay, because this star is crazy big. A quadrillion, uh, let's do it this way. Everybody knows a million, right? How many you know what a million is? You can kind of get your head around a million. Everybody? All right. You know that a billion is a thousand million and a trillion is a thousand billion and a quadrillion is a thousand trillion, right? Everybody knew that? Here's the perspective. This changed my life, right? A million seconds ago? Twelve days ago. Isn't that cool? See, that saves you doing that on your little calculator at home, which I dare you to try to do when you get home tonight. But a billion seconds ago, 
You're thinking, oh my goodness, if it's 12 days ago, I'm going all the way back to like September with you, Louie. This must be crazy, right? How about May 1975 is a billion seconds ago. You're like, whoa, that's a little bit bigger than a million. Oh yeah. A trillion seconds ago, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm on the 1800s. No. Christopher Columbus? No. 29,700 B.C. is a trillion seconds ago. A quadrillion seconds ago. 30,800,000 years ago is a quadrillion seconds ago. We're talking about a really large number, and Musifi is so big, you could put 2.7 quadrillion Earths inside this one star. But it is not even the biggest star we have found. I love science. And science has just brought us the largest star they found. It's called, are you ready for this? Canis Majoris. Now, I'm no linguist, but that's a cool name for the biggest star we've found so far. I think that means the big dog star, and that's exactly what it is. I bring it to you as a little bitty purple, you know, glow just to the right of center there. But Canis Majoris, oh, wow. If the earth were a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. Thank you. You just saved your family plane fare from California to Kathmandu, Nepal. Almost six miles above sea level, the highest point on the planet. And I just dare you to get up there and unzip the parka and pull out your golf ball. You could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside Canis Majoris. That's enough Earths if the Earth were a golf ball to cover the entire state of Texas in golf balls 22 inches deep. You see the one you're on? Maybe this will help a little bit more. This absolutely blew my mind. Just a little journey through our solar system. Everyone knows our planets and sort of how we fit in to the story here. You see really quickly that we're not even the biggest deal in our own solar system, but as Earth comes by, you have to know tonight that we are living on a privileged planet. Anyone would tell you we're living at one of the most special places, if not the most special place in all of creation. But Neptune comes by and Saturn and then Jupiter and you're like, okay, we're not all that big, even in our own little cul-de-sac. I just noticed the blue dot fading away is not the Earth. That's Neptune. The Earth has gotten too small to see anymore. Sirius comes by. Little plug for satellite radio. Not the biggest star, but the brightest star that we have found so far. Pollux, which we didn't mention. Arcturus. Such a beautifully named one, Regal. But then the one that messed me up.
our third star, Musifi. Musifi's cousin, W. Sifi. And do you know that you couldn't come up here right now with a Sharpie and make a mark on the screen that would approximate the size of our sun? You couldn't even do it. I mean, when you look at these and their relative size, we just have to put a little arrow over there that says, if you could put the sun on here, which you can't, it would go somewhere about here. And um, can you hang on that for me? And when you see this, I don't know what happens to you, but I'll tell you what happens to me. A shrinking feeling comes over me, and it's not a bad shrinking feeling. It's a good shrinking feeling. Because sin, it has a a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe that God has made resizes everything in a heartbeat. And you realize tonight, we are worshiping an unrivaled, uncontested God of all kind of might and power and glory and awe, who is, there's none like Him anywhere in all of creation tonight. We are not here worshiping some little teeny tiny God. We are the teeny tiny ones, you and me. We are small and weak and fragile and frail. We are, you and me tonight, one of six and a half billion people on this little golf ball-sized planet in this massive universe that God has made. But I'll tell you, the miracle of tonight is, is crazy and crazier to me than the size of any star is that though we are but a vapor, you and me, and tiny and frail, we are marked by majesty. And we have been created in the very image of the God who breathes out the stars and put the universe into place. You and I are fashioned and formed and ordained by the God of all creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, you and I. We are. Okay. Paul said to the people in Ephesus, I pray that you would just begin to understand. If you could only just begin to understand the greatness and the size of who God is, it would transform your life. That's not one of ours, is it? Okay. My wife's carrying a child. It could be. Okay. Hey, we got eight. What's wrong with one more? Don't let the enemy of your life steal the joy that God created you for. I know that you're in a season that's difficult or you've come out of one or you might be heading into one. It's natural in the course of human nature to have ups and downs. But God says you keep your focus on who I am and my purposes will prevail in your life. So we're just going to finish with with a song here. Um, feel free to worship along. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the man uh, Job. Job was a wealthy man, a man who honored and feared God, and his whole life fell apart. He lost his children, his family, his wealth, his health. He lost everything through a series of circumstances. And we have recorded the story, and he's conversing with his friends. And Job is crying out. He's being attacked and accused by his friends. But in the midst of his pain... 
Uh, Job says something very famous. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he cares for me. And in that moment, Job was seeing the bigness of God above the reality of the challenge of his circumstances. And I've read that verse many times. I've heard people read it many times. But I wonder how Job said it. I don't think Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and he cares for me. I don't think he said it that way. I think with his teeth gritted and his jaw locked, in spite of every circumstance in the moment of his life, he was saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that he cares for me. And Job said, I know that one day I will see him face to face. Job was able to get through his circumstances because he focused on the bigness of God. Let's take the final few minutes here to worship and focus on that.